So there's nothing as disappointing as having the off-brand version of something that's actually good. Y'all know what I mean? Like, instead of eating an Oreo, which we know is the perfect (laughs) cookie sandwich, like, delicious, you get a cream between. (laughs) Which should taste like an Oreo, right? Like, they look the same, but it's incredibly unsatisfying. It's not, not even close. Or maybe you meant to get some Pop-Tarts at Hannaford's from Amber. Um, But instead, you accidentally grabbed a box of toaster tarts. (laughs) So now your whole room, or now your whole week, you're essentially crying over frosted cardboard in your dorm room. So it's not not a replacement. And, okay, one more. So maybe you're at a friend's house, and you ask for some butter, and they give you some, I think it tastes like butter. (laughs) And you're like, mmm, this is really good. Thank you. And these off-brand versions look legit, right? Like, it's close. Um, And they taste, like, fine enough. But, and, like, sometimes you get the off-brand one and you think you're smarter because you're saving a couple bucks um, instead of getting, like, the real Oreos. But you're never going to get the same satisfaction as the real thing. It's not even close. Um, There's always something off about these off-brand versions. They're disguising themselves in similar packaging, colors, branding, but it's just never going to be the same. We're led to believe that it's just close enough. And when we look at this passage in Revelation tonight, we see a beast that looks good on the surface, but is actually bankrupt or sinister inside. The beast is not only misleading us into believing it is something else, but also missing something. It's not just the false version of what it's supposed to be, but empty and hollow inside. This beast is hiding out and disguising itself as something it's not, and we're tricked and deceived into thinking it's the real deal. This beast is later referred to as a false prophet or someone that is pretending to speak for God, but is actually speaking a lot of lies about who God is. And tonight we'll be looking at this passage to see what this beast is or false prophets are, look like around us, why we trust them, and what this means for us. So just like the cream-betweens are successful in making us believe it's just like an Oreo when it's not, right? <laughs> this beast that rises out of the earth here in Revelation makes us believe that it is that it, the beast, is of the church and Christian and just like who God is. It's so close to looking like the real deal, so close to completion, yet it's not. False prophets or pseudo-Christianity is a dragon in lamb's clothing, as we see in verse 11, which you can see on your handout. Um, When I was in Oregon over the winter break, um, I had to self-isolate because I have some vulnerable family members, and I binged a bunch of episodes of this show where Leah Ramini, who was part of this show, King of Queens, if any of y'all have even heard of that, um, she basically has this show where she exposes the Church of Scientology as a former member. And... All the people she interviews that were working for the Church of Scientology or just a part of it, um, they talk about how they were lured in because it calls itself a church. They even have a cross on top of all their buildings, and people go into Scientology because they share about how they're doing all these good things, how you become enlightened or morally good. But actually, the leader is incredibly emotionally and physically abusive. People are manipulated and families are torn apart. While it looks and even sounds like a church, based off of symbols and good works being done, it's devoid of anything that has to do with Jesus, the gospel, grace, etc. 
It's operating solely off of this false advertised image of God and his church. While empty religions like Scientology look Christian on the surface, there's nothing there that has to do with Christ or the Bible inside these buildings. Or in other cases, we see false prophets or pseudo-Christianity in churches that wed themselves to a nation or political party, like John talked about last week. In history, this has looked like the state church in Nazi Germany or a church that morphs into the Republicans' political agenda or the Democratic Party's political agenda instead of Jesus's. And the kingdom of God and Jesus are no longer the central value and agenda of God's call on his people. This can take on many different forms, but can go from making a cornerstone of the church's beliefs be that everyone must support a political candidate candidate, or you're a heathen and you're not really following Jesus, um, making a political agenda or party become a part of the Christian walk, or even singing the national anthem during a church service, which literally happened at a church in the town I went to college in. Um, and we also see this happen with early slave owners in America. They wanted and were excited for slaves to read the Bible because it often left slaves inspired, but they didn't want their slaves to see the parts of the Bible where slaves were set free. They didn't like those parts, so they would literally cut out parts of the Bible where God set slaves free, including the entire book of Exodus. These Bibles became known as slave Bibles and left out entire central parts of God and his character for slaves who read them. These parts of the Bible they cut out, though, were who God is. Because it didn't sit well with these slave owners, they just decided to distort who God was for their own purpose. Um, the slave owners took their own horrible and political agendas and applied it to a religion that was empty of who God really is. In these empty religions, the kingdom of God is no longer where the church draws its values, but the agenda of what they want done, from electing a political candidate to keeping slaves captive. Another form of false or empty religion is what is called the prosperity gospel. Inside these churches or church buildings, you'll hear worship songs that sound Jesus-y, you know, the arms outstretched, um, whatever that looks like. We've talked about this before. There's like the fish holding. The fish is this big. <laughs> the fish is this big. <laughs> um, you see all of that, you know, the normal telltales of the church. But what's being preached about is not Jesus or the gospel, Christ's crucifixion, a savior, etc., but a message of your best life now. There isn't a message of Jesus, sin, your need for salvation, or even the hope of heaven. The message is about your success, not suffering. The message isn't to see the goodness of God through examining our sin and our broken world um, and to look to the cross, but that you are the hero of your own story. We don't need an actual God to do these things. We're capable on our own. A friend of mine came to college um, where I went to school at App State and was an atheist but started coming to RUF because some friends invited him. And after coming to a couple large groups, my campus minister grabbed coffee with him and asked him, you know, what his thoughts about the sermons he was hearing were. And um, he shared that every time he mentioned something awesome that Jesus did, he replaced Jesus' name with his own. So instead of, like, Jesus did this great miracle, it would be, like, his name. Not trying to expose my friend, Bob. <laughs> like, Bob did that. And he'd be like, wow. <laughs> and he'd feel really good about himself. And while my campus minister wasn't preaching the prosperity gospel, 
He had applied this mentality to what he was hearing, and the message became about his success, not Jesus dying on a cross and suffering for us. These empty religions offer what God can do for us, putting ourselves as the main character, instead of a God who loves us or anyone else, and it becomes a life that is empty of real grace and goodness. One last example I'll give of a false or empty religion is churches that never talk about a savior. This can look similar to the your best life now mentality and gives nice advice to act as band-aids to our suffering, you know, surface level stuff, instead of doing heart surgery, which is what we really need. Instead of looking at the foundation of our lives, the real cause of suffering and pain, it's just nice stuff, like how to have a happy marriage, how to live in peace, just really how to like feel good. My senior year of college, I did a service program with my university and we went to San Francisco and we worked with a bunch of different organizations that week and got to learn from them. And the focuses were on communities affected by the AIDS pandemic, homelessness and food insecurity. Um, It was a really powerful week and it was a non-religious service program, but one of the organizations we worked alongside um, was through a church ministry in the Tenderloin District which is like a really um, historically um, poor neighborhood in San Francisco. And they did a lot of really wonderful, beautiful, vital work for the community. Um, The ministry did all these awesome things. But later that day, after we had served lunch to the homeless there, they shared with us about their church history and um, how they had recently taken down the cross from outside their building to be more inclusive. They believe that by taking Jesus out of the equation, it would be a more full, more loving church. But by doing this, they leave out the essential part of God's word, that we aren't in this alone, and that the God who created everything and everyone wants to walk with us, that we aren't meant to do life or even serve alone. This message leaves out the need for a savior to actually redeem our brokenness, and leaves us in a place of us fixing and healing people. This never leaves a place to see how God really hates injustice and wants to completely redeem our broken world. The last time I was in the Bay Area, I passed by a church that was called the Church of Self-Realization, which is very Silicon Valley-esque-minded name. (laughs) And while I have literally no clue what they talk about or what they do, the idea that we can fix ourselves and that through the power of you know, like manifesting or just thinking and doing good things, we will create enough good energy to heal ourselves and live a good life. And this mentality looks really nice and feels really easy and it's free of this like religious baggage, but it never heals the wounds we have and leaves out a loving father who desires to heal us and make us whole again and more like him. In other words, to sanctify us. These empty religions look like completion, wholeness, and goodness, but never provide true life. They are never going to give us a loving God that sits with us in our situation, walks with us, um, and loves us. So now that we've covered what this beast looks like, let's look at why we are led to trust these empty religions or false prophets. So going back to the passage, let's look at verse 11. Here in John's vision, we see this beast being described. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
This dragon that is mentioned here is the same serpent that has been lying to us since the very beginning with the first two people in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, verse 4, the very first book of the Bible, so going all the way other end um, from the last book, which we're in now, we see Satan's first lie after God had told Adam and Eve to eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for they will die if they do. Um, And the serpent tells Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's telling Adam and Eve that God is keeping good things from him, from them, and asking them, are you really sure you can trust God? And these lies work because our hearts are so prone to mistrust that all we need is a nudge to begin distrusting one another and ourselves. This nudge from the serpent is enough for Adam and Eve to immediately distrust a God that had never been unloving or untrustworthy before. Adam and Eve and all of us are made as trustworthy beings. We are either, we are either inherently trust people or we don't. Like if we get served some bacon and eggs from the dining hall and you can like see the bacon looks really uncooked and the eggs are like really weird looking and they're like kind of green, like hopefully you won't eat them. <laughs> you're, you're not gonna trust that food. But it doesn't mean you're never going to eat again. Like, you're going to eat your next meal after that, even if it's like a granola bar, right? God created every human being, starting with Adam and Eve, to trust and worship him. And as we've talked about in the past few weeks, even if you don't choose to trust him, we all continue to trust and worship something, regardless if we name it or not. Some form of an empty religion. And Satan is good if we trust literally anything besides God. And he's using these signs of fire and great performances, as mentioned in verse 14, um, or what look like good things coming from the Church of Scientology or where the prosperity gospel is preached, to draw us away from what is good and true. We're being drawn away from the real source of life and the author of good into lies and deception from the author of evil. One of the saddest and most real ways I can describe how this looks is from this episode of Planet Earth. It's like season two, I think. Um, And it looks at how baby sea turtles are being born in Barbados. It's gonna be really sad, I'm sorry. (laughs) And because of the light pollution in the city right next to the beach, the lights are even brighter than the light of the moon. And the moon being so bright is how turtles know to go into the ocean. And because the light of the city is so bright, 80% of the turtles born on this beach go into the city instead of the ocean because they think it's the moon. And, you know, the city is obviously dangerous. This isn't a happy ending. (laughs) You know, they go into being risked by being hit by cars, getting trapped in garbage, etc. Which, if that doesn't just make you want to cry for the rest of the night, not really sure what will. But because the lights are so much brighter and better than what is actually going to give them life, These turtles move towards the city where they were inevitably die. In the episode, they save them, don't worry. Um, While living a life independent of God, the church, of Jesus, they they seem better. They're empty religions and they don't offer us real life. It's not where we are meant to live. These lies seem wiser and more evolved or new or better for us, but they both kill us externally and internally. Which brings us to our last point. 
What does this all mean to us, and what do we do when we're being deceived? When we listen to a voice message or recording of ourselves, like all, if I listen to this right now, our first reaction is like, do I really sound like that? Like, am I really that nasal? Or like, is my Rochester accent that bad? Or like, is my voice that low or high? And the answer is yes, like that's how we, all of us hear you all the time. <laughs> Which like, bummer, right? <laughs> but if we don't even know how our own voice sounds, how can we know for being deceived? How are we supposed to sort out the answer to deciphering which lights are the city and which lights are from the moon? And we see the answer to this question in the last verse of this passage, in verse 18, with this calls for wisdom. We desperately need a voice outside of ourselves and outside of a zone of deception to speak to us. While we are easily nudged and deceived and we fall into following the lights from the city, God is the only person that is not deceived by Satan. And God speaks truth to us through his word, the Bible. As Psalm 119 puts it so well, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word provides us clarity and wisdom and a way to walk through darkness, through a broken world because of his love for us. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking, and understandably so, but yeah, the Bible can't be true because there are things in there that like are offensive to me, or there are things in the Bible that bother me and bother a lot of people, so it can't be true. How is this the truth? And I think the first thing we need to recognize is that every, we can all agree that every culture has flaws, right? Like no civilization has gotten everything right. Y'all know what I mean? Like regardless of how hard every culture and civilization has tried, no matter how hard we try right now in Burlington, Vermont, we're going to bring really beautiful and good things into the world, but we all get things wrong, have blind spots. So if the Bible is God's word spoken to us, and God is outside of time and culture, um, and he's speaking to every culture, nation, and civilization, then every culture in some way is going to be called out by it. If it is what it's saying it's supposed to be, it should bother all of us in a meaningful way. The Bible is uncomfortable for all of us, for me, for John, for everyone. And it hurts to have someone say like, hey, you have some stuff in your teeth after you eat a lot of Chipotle. Like even the voice of truth from a friend hurts because it's requiring us to do something. We have to like find the cilantro stuck in our teeth and we need to like go out and get it. It's requiring us to do something. The fact that God's word challenges us is a good sign of its faithfulness and truth. It has wisdom to offer us, just like that friend. And this wisdom isn't something we can just learn from a distance. It's embodied. This means we can't do the Christian life at like arm's length. It isn't wisdom that we learn through an eighth grade awkward dance like this with like Jason Derulo in the background. <laughs> it's wisdom that we get to experience face to face in rhythm with God. And this isn't wisdom that we get through a one day a week commitment when we dilute our life with God to that one hour every Wednesday or one hour every Sunday, we will never get to experience the depth and fullness of who God is. We miss being able to see more clearly the goodness of God's kingdom on earth and who God is through our day-to-day lives. So just as much as we are seeing changes in who we are through wisdom, we get to see more and more of who we were always meant to be and live. 
Now, unless we spend our time with the real deal and become familiar with Jesus in our everyday lives, we won't know what's good or what these false prophets look like. Sommeliers, you know, like the experts of wine, can't know what bad wine is unless they spend their time and lives with the best wine in the entire world. They won't be able to differentiate good or bad wine unless they become ex- they spend a lot of time and become experts within the best of the best. Malcolm Gladwell, who's one of my favorite podcasters and authors, has popularized this idea through research that it takes nearly 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. This means that sommeliers, the best piano players in the world, um, you know, the best doctors and nurses, which are going to be some of you in this room, <laughs> um, the best engineers, they have to spend about 10,000 hours to become experts within their field. And while this feels so long, our hours add up quickly and with ease when we become familiar with God and his word, when we let God enter into our lives fully. When we enter into, when we let him enter into the messy parts, the easy parts, the challenging parts, and even the parts of us we don't want to look at. Our lives become fuller when we become experts in God's wisdom. And this wisdom is through experiential learning, not just through a book. And soon we are no longer living our lives being satisfied with just the empty religions or like the cream betweens. We get to know that Oreos are just aren't just better through reading a book, right? We have to taste and see to know that they're better. And when we become familiar with God and experience our lives with him, you no longer hear a voice from shame of these empty religions. Instead, we hear and experience compassion and conviction that leads us closer to Jesus. We get to be called in instead of being called out. The more time you spend your life in a loving community in the church, the more you'll be able to notice loneliness and hyper-individuality. The more you get to savor the gospel and the goodness of grace, the more you'll be able to detect legalism. And friends, while the city lights are shiny and pretty and seem way easier, true freedom is found under the light of the moon in the vast ocean. The ocean seems really scary and big, but it's where we are meant to live. While fitting an easier narrative that makes us the main character, makes us our own savior, or makes our agendas come through, or manifesting our lives to feel easier, we cannot make eternal life on our own. Jesus died for people that didn't choose to worship him. God chose his love for us while we were still sinners. While we were deceived and opposing Jesus actively, refusing to worship and trust him, he died for us. He rescues deceived people when we're still deceived. We can trust Jesus and his wisdom because he dies for his enemies instead of these empty religions that kill us. Jesus cares so deeply for his enemies instead of slaying them like the beast in this passage does. So tonight, what would it look like to look again at God if you've been unwilling to trust him? What would it look like to move away from our comfortable narratives that center our own ideas and dispositions into one that we aren't the main character, where we can hear a voice outside of our own, to not just know the almost good thing, the off-brand version of life, but to get the real thing, life with a living God, with a loving God who loves and sees us. Let's pray.